Hi, you're listening to Hoople Heads, a Deadwood podcast at Movie Fail. I'm Esther Rosenfield. I'm here with Soren Howe, and today we're talking about episode eight of season three, Leviathan Smiles, directed by Ed Bianchi, written by Kem Nunn. Uh, interesting. I don't think we've seen anything from Kem Nunn before. No, so uh, Kem Nunn is a novelist and a surfer, so yeah. you not probably is such a surprise that he is the co-creator of John from Cincinnati. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah, I looked him up before this because I was like, who is Kem Nunn? Uh, so that's that's back, that's as much as I know. I just like read a, literally one sentence and then that was... Sufficient. Yeah, his Wikipedia credits him in order as a novelist, surfer, magazine writer, and television writer. Yeah. So this is not what he's known for. I guess, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny because he did create a TV show, which you know usually would score One. higher. But <laughs> well, he cre- when you create a TV show, uh, there's that, and then there's creating John from Cincinnati. So there's like levels. Well, but John from Cincinnati, people didn't say it was bad, and people didn't say it was bad, but people also didn't say anything about it because they did not watch it. <laughs> Is that true? I mean, it was canceled after one season. Wow, that doesn't necessarily mean people weren't watching it. Well, I mean, some people were watching it. <laughs> Clearly, you know, some people will watch anything. We're going to watch John from Cincinnati. It's going to be the greatest show that you've ever seen, and you're going to regret saying that. But If we do that instead of Evangelion next, I don't know what I'm going to do. We definitely should. <laughs> Look, it's only one season. It's so quick. I guess it is only one season. It's only what, probably it's like such a small commitment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an easy commitment. I don't... I. <laughs> We, first, what we have to do is discover the John from Cincinnati fandom to find anyone who would listen. <laughs> True. Um, but, you know, and then, you know, but it, look, if it's David Milch, it's just like when you, in the totality of what he's done with Deadwood and how much effort and care he's put into, like, making the show. Obviously, Deadwood is, I think, historically just more of a thing for him. Um like he didn't return to John from Cincinnati and make a movie of it, right? But um, <laughs> that would have been fantastic. So, like, it, Deadwood's definitely like his. It seems like it's his main project, his pet project, his thing that he feels closest to. But he, he definitely seems to put a lot of care into all of the projects that he's worked on. So, I would be surprised if it wasn't good. He also did. What was it Luck? Was Luck the other one he did? And yeah, that, Luck. That's, and that was that supposed was to be really thing. good too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Michael Mann was a uh, directed the pilot. I've always been meaning to get around to it because I love Michael Mann. Yeah, exactly. So, there yeah. you go. I, I heard Luck was great. Um, not great for the horses. The horses, yes. On set. Yeah, and that's but actually why that was, that was canceled show. for. Yeah, exactly. That was canceled for horse reasons, not because people weren't watching it per se. Horse reasons. Horse reasons. Um, speaking <laughs> of horse reasons, uh, I do. There have... are some horse reasons in this episode. <laughs> I wanted to bring something up. Uh, last week we were talking about uh, Blazanov uh, and his his defiant speech about telegrams um and something i wanted to just mention there is that he gives a fantastic speech about um you know something that's often not really discussed not to make this political but it is an overtly political speech but like something that's often not discussed is like the unity of the the working class uh especially among immigrants and among international populations and blazanov makes that argument here exactly where he's like these are people who are away from their families who came to the the you know here to, to to work and like make a living and um and they're just being abused by these like corporate structures right and it's just this, it's this overtly uh overt 
labor screed, um, which is was awesome. The caveat being, of course, that when it comes to like Chinese workers, uh, or like black workers, I, it that, that doesn't seem to really be part of the same framework that he's working in. He seems to very specifically be talking about like Russians and Cornish people, right? Which is a very particular variety of immigrant. <laughs> um, so I'll just throw that, I'll throw that and 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 it and it's overtly you know raised this and also you know for, forget about women right like women who have been trafficked into uh, into like the jam and the belly union and and or in the Chinese part of camp where you know it was even more horrifying and overtly like mentioned in the show so that doesn't really factor into it um, nevertheless it's still good to see at least some solidarity that <laughs> Blazanov seems to be feeling across the camp um, in their, uh, in the rising opposition to, to Hearst. Uh, and it's what's galvanized the whole camp sort of in one particular direction, uh, which leads us into this week. Certainly. Um, this is kind of a scattershot episode. Mm. It is as opposed to the last couple weeks that have seemed very focused on particular things and kind of big things and then like the usual little things kind of kind of scatter there's no real uh i guess you could say the arrival of the erps is the big thing but they are so all over the place in this episode <laughs> um that it's kind of hard to pin down like exactly oh this is what this storyline is about and, and you know naturally just because of their arrival into the camp they have to be introduced to so many people um but yeah, I mean, it's it makes it kind of a hard episode to talk about just because there is there's always a lot going on in a Deadwood episode, but usually it breaks up pretty cleanly into like things to talk about. I mean, I guess we could start with the Earps just because that's sure. the main thing. Sure. But the, I mean, they do so much. They do so much in this episode. They're all over the place. They do. And they're also their storylines, obviously, not anywhere near done. Um, oh, yeah. So that's part of it is that there's no clear arc of, for their characters yet. Um, we're going to see more of them. Um, so this is something that I've been waiting for as well, uh, just cause it's a, you know, these are significant characters in history. Um, but yeah, uh, so they're, they're doing wider, uh, who it's funny did spend a single winter in Deadwood. Um, oh, of course. And and what I learned was, and this may I don't think this is a spoiler because I don't I actually don't remember if this is even a spoiler, so I couldn't even spoil it if I wanted to. But historically, what happened is Wyatt Earp uh, showed up in Deadwood um, and found that everything had been there were no claims left to take, uh, and so instead he goes and finds some finds some like lumberjack or whatever outside of the town who's already cut down a bunch of wood. And I think buys it off of that guy and then sells it in the town and makes like $5,000 profit, which is hmm. very impressive. Um, but that's pretty much all they can do there. And then he goes back to Dodge. Uh, and that's basically literally a town called Dodge. Uh, I'm not sure where it is. Um, this is all freely available on Wikipedia. Anybody can look it up. Uh, and there's like archive articles about from uh, his actual period there. But in any case, um, so that's that's that was... And it tracks with what he's doing here, right? Where he's he's allegedly going to take all these tools and um, go and like cut down a bunch of wood. Um, I don't know that it was a scam per se in the like in the real history of it. I think he just like found a way to make more money at what the other guy was already doing. Um, but I think what's cool about this is that um, Wyatt Earp is not portrayed in a very kind light here 
and that's not necessarily hmm, yeah. how he's been portrayed historically. He's been quite a, it's kind of like a, you know, this legendary gunslinger who was never wounded mythic, in any mythic fight. mythic figure, yeah. Right? And, uh, you know, former lawman, but like doesn't, you know, go to the other side of the, the law in the way that you might expect folks, you know, certainly could do and, and many figures did. Um, but here he's definitely put forward as a more strategic than his brother, but like a not a savory character. Right? He comes into into town immediately lying about his what he's done, um, and of course Al immediately figures it out. So does Seth, um, and uh, yeah, I, I mean it's uh, I, I like that they're they're doing this little pivot here, and I also like they're, they're teasing. I don't know where it's going to go, but they're teasing this showdown between Wyatt Earp and and Seth. Um, it's worth noting that while Wyatt Earp was never injured in any fights, uh, Morgan and I think Virgil, who's the other brother who's not here, uh, were did end up injured in several fights. So, and it, it, the hint is that Earl is the one who's going. Is it is it Earl? Morgan, Morgan, Morgan. That's what it is, right? Um, I don't know Earl. Um, <laughs> Morgan <laughs> is going to be uh, you know the one who ends up triggering some sort of conflict because he's the one who's a lot more wild and less strategic and doesn't really seem to have a plan. He's just kind of winging it. Um, but I like this idea that we saw with we saw with Bill uh, Hickok and uh, Bullock that they're both they were both extremely fast with a gun, and of course we know that's true of Wyatt Wyatt Earp. So um, that's kind of a fun like showdown of these like sort of legendary characters, including one that the show is sort of manifested. Right? There's nothing historical about Seth Bullock being, you know, this legendary gunslinger. He's just a sheriff in Deadwood, um, but they've made him into this character, and I kind of like that. And I also like that Seth is obviously somebody we root for, um, and so pitting. Wyatt Earp is sort of an antagonist to that is kind of a cool idea. Um, yeah, I like um, introducing more historical figures. I mean, this late in the game, it's cool because that was sort of, we, you know, obviously not a lot of people who we, we've seen like, um, you know, while, while Bill was the big one, obviously, George Hurst is the other big one. Mm. But there have been historical figures who have sort of floated in and out of the show. Um and I, I like obviously everyone on the show, almost at least, is is directly based on a real person. Right. So I think it's cool to get another taste of that, especially a figure as well known, or not even as well known, but as entrenched in popular culture as Wyatt Earp is. Oh yeah. Um, and to see the show, you know, you know, Wild Bill Hickok, there were movies about him, but it wasn't the show didn't really reinterpret him. It kind of just presented him as he's typically presented. Yes. It's not in, in a very well-written way. Yeah, a more holistic um, way than perhaps. Apparently, I, this is kind of a fun fact, the, f- the only time Wyatt Earp, the only film that Wyatt Earp was alive for that portrayed him in a film was a movie called, I think, Wild Bill Hickok. And while oh, I haven't sure. seen this 1920-whatever film, although I'm kind of curious to see it now. Um, I'd be curious too. <laughs> it's, uh, it, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it doesn't portray wild bill uh like with, he is in with the, the show. same level of nuance maybe the same level of nuance yeah where he's kind of this tragic figure but maybe it does i don't know who knows I, i've been surprised before by like old films where you go wow they were doing that then and we're still in the you know <laughs> dealing with just mediocre anyway so um mm-hmm. so yeah i don't know but i i agree with you that uh that it's um this is like a, a bit of a spin on a character which is kind of cool and i guess hearst yeah, is exactly. too you know Depending on who you're listening to. Hurst is to. too. I mean, but again, but Hurst is also like there's a political angle to and a thematic angle yes, to how Hurst yes, is depicted for sure. Um, whereas this is more just from a writer's perspective. Like, let's take this very mythic figure 
and write him against that. Write him as... It almost feels like we're writing the truth of what he was really like. Obviously, we have no way of knowing what he was really like because it's all just accounts mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and fictionalizations. But I like the notion of like taking this uh, very, like I say, entrenched in pop culture character and doing a version of him that's almost to say, this is what the real, this is what he was really like, and he's the kind of guy who would create that legend around himself. You know what it kind of reminds me of. Did you see the the rock in Hercules? <laughs> I I skipped that one actually. Really? Oh, okay. Ian McShane is in that, so that's why uh, that, oh, is that it occurred to me. Um, yeah, he's he plays <laughs> a very weird character, um, like an amusing character. But like again, it's just you the whole movie. You're going like having watched Deadwood. You're like I can't believe Ian McShane is doing this role. Given. That was me seeing the new Hellboy, to be honest with you. Well, exactly, exactly. It's like, and actually, when they cast him in that role, I was like, that character is a cool character from the comics. Uh, you know, I, I can't speak to that film. I, I didn't actually see the new Hellboy, but um, it is very bad. <laughs> um. So, but anyway, so in that movie, like, not to ruin anything, this is like the plot of the film is that I really don't care if you spoil me on the the rock Hercules. Oh, I'm not worried about you, but just people listening. Um, <laughs> I know, but I know. yeah, but like the, the central premise, it's revealed in the first like two minutes of the movie to just to make this point, which is that Hercules, um, his labors and his legend is completely fictional. He's just a strong guy, like like a the rock basically. He's just like a man, mm-hmm. uh, and he has this team of um, of people, this like woman who's an archer who's. Uh, cool and Ian McShane's character and somebody else and they all work together secretly and Hercules is sort of the face of this operation to make these things look like they're these superhuman feats but actually it's all just like kind of trickery but like he cleared the entire field by himself but actually he had a help of like this like band of people and they all did it together and then but the story gets told that it's just Hercules and he's just sort of keeping up this myth and he's like doing good works but it's all completely like fictional um so that i immediately thought of that because it's like it's this creation of a myth in the in the time it's not even like post case like no understanding the um the pr of it so well <laughs> that it's mm-hmm. better for me to 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 create this myth now because i'll benefit from it uh, and that's exactly what Wyatt Earp's is doing now of course hercules in in the movie is not like a bad guy, um, but here uh, Wyatt Earp isn't portrayed as a bad guy, but he's not portrayed as a particularly savory character. He's kind of a scumbag. It seems like. Yeah, exactly. It is. It is. It's an interesting kind of archetype that I'm always that I'm always into of the guy who creates a myth around himself of being very heroic and not to, not to hide that he's so sinister and actually evil, but just because he likes people thinking he's a hero and maybe he is actually ultimately doing good, but he's not that good. And he just likes people thinking that he is. Mm. Um, that's definitely, I, I couldn't, I'm bad at, at naming examples off the top of my head in any situation because <laughs> I have bad memory, but I know that that's an archetype I've seen before in other things. Mm. Um, and it's cool. Yeah. I, I like, again, I like this twist on, on, on Wyatt Earp. Um, and also to show his brother, who isn't a part of pop culture whatsoever. Not really. I mean, like, uh, you know, the three 
it's so it was the three Earps and then Doc Holliday, but like Doc Holliday, yeah. But I mean, you see, I mean, I think he's a char- He might be a character in Tombstone or like right, exactly, exactly. The many movies that have been made about the OK Corral, but he's not like you don't know who Morgan Earp is. Yeah, I mean, I think they're they're doing some they're like they're 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 taking some effort to, and I also find it interesting that they've left Virgil out, and I'm not sure if it's because I don't know if he like I really don't know much about the history of the Earps, but like if he would have been around at this time or what. Um, but yeah, or Doc Holliday or any of them. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, and I also like, I was really trying to figure him out during this meeting that he has with Al, which happens very quickly. Mm. And like, you knew what Al was thinking because Al immediately, he, he's like, I've pulled this exact stunt. I mean, like, <laughs> as soon as they came into town, he was just like, mm-hmm, right. <laughs> um, and then he's like, he takes even further. Like, not only is this my trick, I literally control all of the like ways in and out of this camp. So literally like you can't possibly have done what you said you did. Um, and, uh, but, but he just sits there sort of stony faced the entire time. Um, like he kind of looks a little bit agitated when he leaves, but that's pretty much it. Um, and it's, he just keeps referring to his plans. Like it's very unclear as to what his goal is um, in the context of the camp. Uh, and it hasn't really been revealed to the, to the audience yet. Uh, so yeah, just in trying to parse his character, I've been left a little bit short and I don't think, I think actually the performance is quite good. I just don't know what it's getting at yet. Well, what's funny is I think that my takeaway from this, at least so far is that he's being pretty upfront with everybody. I think he's right about the, I think he's, I don't know. I don't get the sense that he is, obviously I don't think he's working for Hearst, which is what everyone assumes about him and his brother. Mm. Um, I don't think that's the case. And we know it can't be the case because Hearst's actual men show up at the end of the episode. Um, I guess that doesn't mean it couldn't be the case, but it makes it pretty unlikely in my opinion. Um, I think he may have ulterior motives for being there. But my impression of him, my impression of him is that he went along with his brother's kind of scheme to get, you know, goodwill as they entered the camp. But he is not a particularly dishonest person. Mm. I think that he may be omitting some truth about why he's there, but I don't think that his action, he is making up this story entirely. Yeah, it's kind of hard to tell what his... Yeah, I I mean, I agree. And I, I think probably the strongest evidence of that... Uh, the strongest evidence of that is when he is talking to Seth and they have that really cool moment of um, solidarity over being former law people. Yeah, that was really great. It's a fantastic scene where he basically... You know, Seth's trying to make some peace, um, which is good because size trying to manipulate a fight between uh uh Earp and and bullock um and they make a little bit of peace over the fact that you know there's no even taking off the badge you still have this desire to to wail on people which is i think a, <laughs> something of a commentary on uh, law enforcement in general um and uh and but I, it's kind of a nice <laughs> it's kind of a in that context kind of hard to to praise but in the context of the show it's a nice little moment of you know, they both understand this, uh, the the weight of the tin, I suppose you could call it, um, and that they are, um, you know, there's some common 
understanding there. And I, I yeah, so it's just it's, it's it's a nice little little connector that might keep them from trying to kill each other, which then further emphasizes the point that while his brother also was a law person, uh, which is I think maybe why they have him suggest that they become deputies, um, seems to have less of a connection there. So he may be the one to initiate some sort of conflict if it does arise. Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see. I don't, I mean, they part on such good terms, you know? Not good terms, but on, they part, they, they part ways kind of with an understanding. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of... And I do really like that moment of them finding that common ground in what, what, what Seth is, what Seth says to him is basically like, I, I took off my badge and the urge to, I mean, he says, like, the urge to beat people, beat certain people up didn't go away. What he's really saying is that inclination towards justice didn't go away. It, that's what he means by that. That's the way that Seth sees the world, mm. um, <laughs> which is kind of funny in its own way. Mm. Um, but no, I think that, I mean, I. it's funny because Hearst kind of gives Sai the go-ahead on this plan to uh, to get them to fight each other. And then based on where they ended in this episode, that does not seem like it's going to happen. Um I don't think Seth... It's funny, because Seth starts this episode so annoyed, so I would have been really worried that, like, oh, he's just ready to, like, go off at anybody. Um, well, so that's what I think I think part of that is, is that by the end of the episode, he's trying to reel back a little bit and not get so... Um, he's trying to temper it a little bit, um, as he does with Martha, uh, and... I think in that spirit, he has this conversation with, with Wyatt Earp. Now, it could blow up into something else later, and again, it could end up being something with Morgan, but it's, it's too early to say, I would say. Um, I do want to say that moment with Martha's really good. Yeah, when, I actually um, like both scenes with that. I think they were, they're really solid. Go, go ahead. So there's this great moment. It's the, pretty much the first thing we see in the episode, mm-hmm. except, um, well, I guess it opens on Merrick and Blazanoff, but um, the first thing we see after that is Martha and Seth having this argument in the morning, and she is... I, I like that the way their relationship has kind of developed off-screen since last season, yeah. but I really like the place that it's in now, where she can, where she says to him that he for... Like, you, you forewent your usual affections last night. Mm. Um, and I like that they can be... Like, they seem to be in an actual, like, relationship now. Yeah, and he... Um, and, and, like, a, a healthy one. Yeah, exactly. Which... Like, we're in that they... <laughs> that he... <laughs> it's a rare thing on exactly. Deadwood, a healthy relationship. No, but yeah, it's um, I, it's clear obviously that his mind is on other things. That he doesn't. Uh, what what he says he's annoyed about is that he uh, Martha keeps letting the theater troupe like delay when they're going to move uh, the kids to the new school or build the new location or whatever. Mm. Um, obviously, he has a lot more on his mind, and he's kind of taking it out on her. But there's this great moment where he very sarcastic, when she says that to him about, you know, his affections or whatever, mm. he very sarcastically apologizes, and then he walks to the door. And then again, great great Ed Bianchi shot. You see him at the door through this tiny little window yeah. pane, just his face, <laughs> as he turns back, and he and he says it again, but very sincerely, yeah. before leaving. That's that's a very Seth Bullock moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually really like that, and I liked immediately after, I like uh, Timothy Oliphant uh, here, where he's irritated with uh, Saul, who he immediately oh, yeah. starts talking to. Then Saul just takes it as he always does, and then cracks a joke, and Seth just smiles, and then mm-hmm. a gunshot goes off, and he immediately switches again to being super alert. He just goes yeah. through like these three emotions in like a minute. It's really cool. Um, 
but yeah, no, I like this stuff with with uh, with Martha and Seth. Uh, I like also that there's, it's not, it's not framed as like Seth. It's framed as like a mutual argument where they we come in late, so we don't see the initial part of this, but later it's asserted. Although it may be that Martha's just taking the fall for the sake of uh, um, making up. But I don't think that's the suggestion here. The suggestion is that before we enter the scene, Seth has asked about the theater troupe stuff, and Martha has in some way obfuscated or just maybe answered testily or who knows, some sort of thing, and he took it extremely badly (laughs) and also has been really just touchy and irritable for the past, Mm -hmm. you know, 24 hours. And at the end, they both apologize to each other for their corresponding... Uh, whatever error, um, and it's a really good, it's just a really nice, you know, moment. And and what it suggests is that whole point of moving the um, the the board between them and the bed that we saw, I think, last season, uh, and also post William's death, they've managed to, you know, get back into a, or get into maybe even a new rhythm of whatever their relationship is. You know, they don't make it super clear that they're necessarily having sex or anything like that but they're at the very least like have a very like amiable amiable relationship that forget about the stresses outside of camp it's not like those things are instead of a relationship they are like work stresses that he tries to not bring home even though he does because he's Seth um, and and same with her I guess um, and uh, and then they have to like figure that stuff out because they want to you know maintain their home together and I think that that's um, it's just very normal it's just like a normal relationship like a normal house yeah so yeah exactly um, and by the way you, you mentioned this opening scene I love this opening scene I think it was so cool I didn't think we've ever seen this before where the camp is well I guess we've seen like a person outside, you know, rambling to themselves kind of thing. But we haven't ever really seen this really cool um, moment in uh, the camp, like in the early morning where you have um, Blazanov and uh, uh, Merrick going around uh, handing out newspapers, uh, delivering them early in the morning. And I, I just, I don't know, I really like the way the camp looks at that that hour. Uh, and I also really yeah, like. I did too. I really like the fact that Richardson like is literate uh, mm-hmm. and is just reading the newspaper like a normal person, despite all of everyone else's uh, insults. Uh, and everyone else is like reading, you know, like what is it Johnny or somebody else is reading it later, but like reading it out loud mm-hmm. and slowly. Uh, and Richardson just reading to himself like in his head. It's <laughs> like it just contrasts with like the way the show has portrayed him so far, and I just I like that. That plus what we've seen with him and Aunt Lou is that he's actually a lot more on the ball than people seem to realize. Anyway, so I, I, well then, I Farn- then Farnham seems to realize everyone else seems to be okay with him. Yeah, well, and most other people just kind of ignore him. But um, but yeah, yeah, no, I just yeah, it's good, it's good stuff. Um, and it turns out the letter was extremely effective. Uh, it got exactly the reaction that they were going for. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, we see Hurst immediately come in to threaten Merrick very openly oh yeah um although funny enough he hasn't tried to like take hold of the uh uh which is funny considering like the Hearst legacy in media but like they he never tries to come and take hold of the um uh the newspaper or anything like that so far i don't think well it never occurs to him to try and 
ally with people for one thing. But you're right that he would like a, a forceful takeover doesn't seem to have crossed his mind. Maybe it's I think it's because maybe he considers the newspaper up to this point so petty and like not really important that he would never even think that it might be either useful to him or it might be useful to him to like put it out of commission or have it under his control so that it's not under Merrick's control. Um, well, yeah, I mean, consider how he thinks of the camp, right? Like, it's just a bunch exactly. of, like, uh, you know, cavemen. So why would I care about it? It's like caring about a school newspaper. It's like, no, I'm just going to go yeah. and do what I want. They're kids. <laughs> uh, and then he's mm-hmm. really, he's getting so much pushback that he's like, maybe the newspaper matters? I don't know. Um, and now, but, uh, of course, at the end of the episode, we see that uh, he's got other plans as well. But, um, yeah, it'll be... Um, I'm concerned that he's going to start moving in a bit harder on uh, on Merrick. Uh, I'm very afraid for, for Merrick. <laughs> Although Merrick does, you know, stand up for himself. He doesn't like shrink at the uh, at the you know. Well, Merrick's being Merrick's put in a really tough position here because he has to basically pretend that he is that he had no ulterior motive for printing the letter yep. when why like come on <laughs> it, like you can pretend like you had there's no reason to print it. Unless you had a reason to print well, it. Well, you know, it, I, I like, so obviously the show has portrayed Hearst as the bad guy, and he is uh, by all metrics. But what I do like is that there's a little bit of color to it in that he has pointed out that Seth is not applying the law equally, right? And now he's pointed out that Merrick is not a neutral bystander at all. Um, so he's kind of revealed a little bit of hypocrisy on the other side of things. Um, now that doesn't in any way it even con- conceivably measure up to how backward um, and and like morally repugnant uh, Hearst is. But he has sort of illuminated these things, and we put some in the corner. Like Seth had nothing to say about how Al can just kill people and doesn't get <laughs> nothing happens to him, and nor can Merrick say anything about why he published this letter. Like obviously it was a you know, a, a tactical move that he was doing on behalf of other actors. Um, well, this again, you know, we talked, I brought up last week about Hearst is this very, what we think of today is the neoliberal figure. And it's funny to think of him being like, I can't believe these people aren't playing by the rules. And when it's like your enemies, there's no, like you're, you, you are set against each other. Hearst, ha- you have made it so that you are set against these people. And now you're expecting them to play by the rules. Like, come on. You gotta. I, I, I wonder how genuine his frustration even is at that, or if he is just voicing his frustration at losing uh, through the lens of like, well, you're being so hypocritical. Like, why should Hearst is so um, invested in in these systems of power that I don't see why he should even care whether people are play like whether people are playing fair. Does he play fair? Of course he doesn't. No, a hundred percent. I mean, it's not a it's not a good faith thing. But as, as as viewers, exactly we see the hypocrisy, and they're good yeah. points because we're like, of course they would do this. He's an unmitigated bad, and so anything they mm-hmm. do in response is pretty much legitimate. Um, but I just like that he kind of corners these characters and and forces them into a position where they're like, "You're right, I'm not being fair, but you're you know you're awful, so I'm going to do it anyway." Um, well, he's ba- well, he what he forces Merrick to do here is basically. He, Merrick doesn't admit it, but he, he, he has no choice but to, uh, he, he has nothing to say to this accusation, basically. Right. He has no answer for it. He's like, yeah, I mean, it, it is, 
I am treating you unfairly because I am against you. And Merrick has, Merrick can't say that, but he also has nothing. There's no excuse. Like there's nothing reasonable he could come up yeah, with. Like Seth doesn't really have much of an excuse either when he's challenged on that point. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so talk about a cliffhanger ending, huh? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's a joke. You know, I, I know that's the end of the episode, but I just, as a, as a quick point, it's, it's... going to be so long before we watch the next episode. It's going to kill me. <laughs> um for folks at home we will uh we'll 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 be out regularly but uh we're just we're we're rearranging schedules a bit in terms of recording so we will get there and i know it's uh for for esther and i we're um we're doing what we can to uh (laughs) to keep ourselves placated but yeah um so that's gonna be exciting uh so I would say, so one, uh, as a small, um, this isn't like a major plot point, but just following up on the Jane and Joni stuff from last week. Yeah. Um, so the it was very ambiguous last week. Obviously they kissed, but we weren't sure what else there was in terms of progression of like, are they in a relationship or what's going on? And um, we get two interesting points here. One is that Jane is playing it all super nonchalant did not sleep in the same bed as Joni it's not clear if they slept together at all um I think the implication we're meant to take from that is that they didn't that's the implication it's certainly the implication um and uh and then Jane sort of weirdly sort of standoffish as I said nonchalant whatever says she has errands like Mm -hmm. which no she doesn't what does she do all day besides not entirely clear also where she get the money for drink um (laughs) I suppose she has money, like, from being in the army. She legitimately was on, like, <laughs> fields. Um, but uh, doesn't seem to have any other um, source of income, so... I guess she does odd jobs for Charlie, right? Yeah. Every now and again. He, so maybe, maybe that's her, I guess. Maybe that's enough. And then whenever she needs another job, she'll just go back and get it. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but yeah, so she doesn't really have anything to do there. Um, but I like that when she, so So that's point A, is they didn't sleep together. However, in case anyone was at all unsure as to whether they uh if that the what the suggestion is of their relationship here um we have shaughnessy quoting a very specific bible verse now which he has written on a board yeah he's he's had he has them all over his 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 doors as we've seen previously but yes here he's specifically berating them from a board and um i will just say this board in case any lesbians stay in my hotel i have it all set just in case (laughs) Exactly. Um, well, because the one he has is quite um, is quite uh, uh, specific, quite general, so that you can apply it to you know what his general complaint is, which is people are messy uh, or not you know f- not clean in some form or fashion. But what he says as they're leaving is, and the I think he says something along the lines of, and the rest of the verses too, or, or the rest of the verse too, or something of that those natures. Now. I, not being a uh, Christian of any sort, um, <laughs> did not know this particular verse or anything about it. This is from Romans. Um, so I had to look this up. But apparently in verses 124 to 126, which is what he says specifically, uh, the next line that is not on the board, because again, why would he have that on a board? That would have been really dumb. That would have been ridiculous. It's specifically about lesbians. Specifically. He suggests continuing that verse because he is observing that they are in some sort of 
relationship of some sort. That is his observation, which for us as viewers is again for the confirmation that that is a potentially burgeoning thing, which not that we needed much more confirmation of it, but um, I would not look for that to fizzle uh, anytime soon. Makes you wonder what the social cost of that information being public is at this period in time. Mm. Because when you think about the idea, you know, this is, this is something I had a college professor who really interestingly, he basically said that the concept of homosexuality was in some ways invented by uh, institutions like the church and social conservatives Mm. to describe what previously was just behavior that people would partake in Mm. if they wanted to. Um, now I don't fully like buy into that really in any, you know, in, in any way, but I think it's interesting, (laughs) but I think it's an interesting thing to think about historically. Like you wouldn't say necessarily, they wouldn't say necessarily at the time those two were lesbians. They would say those two women are engaged in a sinful act together. Right. And that's actually, I Um, I said lesbian, but actually the verse is just about women. But no, I mean, this is from our modern perspective. Right. Of course. Of course. So it's curious, like I would wonder, and and it's also very different for women than it was for men, you know, like two men, two men who were gay, if they were, you know, that's, that's like, capital effect. that's sodomy, that's, that's, capital that would, yeah, yeah. that would be considered the most like heinous, most disgusting thing a person could do. They would maybe be tarred and feathered. They would be, you know, lynched. Um, certainly, certainly two, just 80 years before in England, they would have been potentially hanged or he has any number of things yeah i mean it was literally it was a crime and i don't i don't for for, for folks out there i'm not specifically targeting england i just happen to be reading a book that takes place in like the early 1800s and i know that it is a capital offense there but just in general but i'm I'm sure it was not much better anywhere else so you know just for um at least in the the west that law as far as i know that applies to men right it would not have even it would not have even be considered that women could be very different or that they would want to be um and in fact, it would have been, and this is, you know, this carries forward to today in some interesting ways where, you know, lesbian relationships in media are considered in a lot of ways safer mm-hmm. than gay men in relationships in media. Um, so I think it's interesting to think about, like, if it, if this does become public knowledge in the town, what does that mean for these two? Does it mean anything, really? Well, I, I mean, so it's kind of a hard thing. Like, first of all, we don't know their status. I, I think I, maybe I alluded to this last week, but like what is their status? What is their role in the town? Like they're not anything. Right. And also by reputation, you have not that this is a, anything to look down on, you know, in modern terms or, and all the rest of it, but you know, Joni was a madam at best. And she, now she's no longer even that. Uh, but she was like a prostitute for a long time. And so like not on the upper echelons of society by any stretch of the imagination, and Jane's like a drunk who just kind of sleeps outside on the grounds. Uh, so this so, is a fair so point. So like they just don't have any. They they don't have a long way to fall. I guess is what. You're well, saying, and right? also just uh, who cares? Like <laughs> the rest of the yeah, people in town would be exactly. like, you know, if Alma or somebody like a power player in the town was was sleeping with women, then it might be you know worth discussing. But nobody talks about Jane or Joni except for like Fields. <laughs> That's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie, maybe. But, like, what does Charlie care? Plus, he likes both of them, so he'd probably be like, cool. 
um so yeah he wanted them he he's the reason that they started a relationship as i recall yeah so yeah it's actually exactly he suggested they <laughs> they start hanging out so you know and he'd be like yeah i mean i don't know what he but i don't see him caring so like nobody would i, I guess that's part of it is that like there might be social consequences in certain circumstances they've partic- picked these particular outcast characters uh as like the just by circumstances of the characters who are in this relationship, I just can't see it affecting them. But who knows? Who knows? Um, we don't get much follow up on that. Just it's it's a quite a brief scene in this episode. I mean, let's not let's be clear. It was never safe to be gay anywhere in this time period, for any in any way. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't mean to imply that it, that it was if you were a woman or whatever. Um, but I think it will be interesting to see how other people other characters might react to this like i don't well in some know. ways we already see one right we have shaughnessy making some sort of commentary well this is exactly what i'm saying right we see the, fir- the, the first reaction we see is shaughnessy's but also like he, this is from a religious angle mm. and and he complains about everything anyway the, so it's kind of just who nice. else in the town super cares about religion like mm. i guess saul but he's jewish yeah it's <laughs> like i can't see him caring i mean yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't see I don't see Saul giving a shit. I don't see Seth giving a shit. I don't. There are very few characters who I can see being like scandalized. Yeah, I mean, so and at the worst, so so well, okay, so people can be vigilantes and try and inflict harm, which again happens has ha- happens to this very day all the time. In it happened, I think, in London uh, just a couple months ago. Um, yeah. So you know, a hundred percent. It's not like this couldn't happen in the show. Um, so, and like we see Steve uh, just taking the law into his own hands with uh, when he tries to tar. I think it's Fields, right? Um, yeah. So, certainly that kind of thing could certainly happen. But if in terms of legal precedent, the only person who could inflict, who could uh, carry that out would be Seth, and there's just no way he would just yeah. would never do it. It's just not the he's not built into that character. Um, so yeah, uh, I don't. I, I, I hopefully they can just live in peace. That would be nice. Um, <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Uh, speaking of fields, you were really worried last week about how that storyline would play out. Are you satisfied? <laughs> Was I worried? You were very worried. Oh yeah, we were talking about it. You were saying that you they, they had sort of touched on. They had maybe poked their oh I I know their yes toe you're of right. the line no, no. I was that, thinking of potentially they might screw it up with like a redemption arc for Steve and whatnot. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank God. I and mean... instead he got kicked in the head. He was rejected again and then got racist again and then got kicked in the head and is probably just going to die. So it really, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly the, this, what I said last week was, I hope that this is just the end of it, but they continued. And first of all, what I wrote down when they continued is like, I'm glad that, fields gets this moment where he gets to respond uh not speaking directly to steve but he gets to like uh voice his side of the argument basically in a way that he can't directly to steve because steve is so volatile um in which in which sense specifically well i just like that he gets to he gets to hurl back um thoughts and i say thoughts and opinions like you know uh slurs basically mm. not racial slurs but like cocksucker mm. that sort of thing that he gets to do that because steve is 
not not even before Steve is out of commission, when he's just by himself and talking to himself about right. it, that the show gives him that space to do yep. that. Yep, yep. Whereas previously he had just kind of been just like last episode, it, yeah. he just he was just taking it. Um, Which again, in terms of safety, may have been the best option, but you know exactly. But that's the thing. It's like the show he had no outlet, and the show kind of gives him a moment alone where he can have that outlet. And I think that's and good. then it's particularly good um, because first of all, we see see Steve sort of get what and by the way steve's whole thing here is that we've it's then revealed that sure he maybe felt a little bit of regret maybe he was sort of softening a bit on keeping fields around but ultimately we realize it's just because he can't do math and he needs somebody to stay and do math that's that's it um and uh yeah it's uh so it's 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 like cathartic to see him get kicked in the head and then uh, it's even more cathartic to see Fields uh, throw porridge at him. Um, I, I, I really <laughs> dug it. <laughs> it's funny because, like, I think there's a bad version of this storyline where it's like it basically forces Fields to be the bigger person, right? Mm. It's like, well, Steve is injured and he does go get Doc Cochran, but it's not this sense of like, well, I'm actually the noble one. You know what mm. I mean? I'm the I'm the good guy. And I'm going to be the bigger person that you and I'm going to show you that you're wrong about me, that you see so often oh, in yeah. kind of racial dynamics. That is just shit. It's awful. <laughs> um, and I like that, you know, he does go get the doc and he does stay around. But he also like it's not out of like some kind of noble desire to do the right thing. It's just like it's the bare minimum you know what i mean Mm. and then he flings porridge in his face and then he feels bad about flinging porridge in his face and that's kind of the moment that works is that he's like all right you know the guy the guy's brain dead yeah but like i'm not i'm like he's basically going like it's not him saying i'm such a good person it's him basically going well i'm not a monster yeah i'm not a sadist yeah exactly exactly you know i'm not i'm not evil i'm not a great person but come on and i i'm glad that the show lets him exist in that area yeah, no, I agree. I think that it's um, it it caps off this quite weird story in a in a good way. I hope. I mean, he kind of set up the scenario so that he would be able to leave, and still hasn't. Um, I don't know if that means he's going to be nursing Steve for the rest of the season. Hmm. I'd, I guess we'll see. I, yeah, we don't we don't really know. He said he would be there until they sent someone over from the bank, um, but it's not clear if and when that'll happen, or if he'll be the one who ends up looking after the horses. Um, but I also just want to point out that this is another. I love that they've done this. Um, they have on three occasions now. I think, yeah, three occasions. So there's the part. There's the, the scene where he gets tarred. There's um, uh, William getting killed and then there's this um two of them being horse related for some reason um but famously fields the real fields was always in the wrong place at the wrong time um and as a black person you know it's you don't want to be in the wrong place at the wrong time um especially here in this particular situation uh and as soon as um steve got his head kicked in you're, you start to wonder you know oh no he's gonna get blamed for this he's gonna get you know and it, you could easily make that case that Fields was angry about his friend getting killed and now has taking vengeance on, you know, it, you could easily see that hat playing out in a really bad way. Um, and I like that they've sort of <laughs> kept this this theme of Fields just having the absolute worst luck 
um, mm-hmm. in the course of the uh, in the course of the show. Yeah, and, and it's funny, you know. Part of it is like, if Steve was conscious, that's that's what he would be doing. He would be trying to play it up like mm-hmm. that. But there is just no one to speak for yeah. him. He has no friends. He has no allies. So it's and the doc's not going to not going to. And Jane likes him. The doc's not going to say anything. And Seth has been on their side. So exactly, yeah. Like there's no there's no one left who's going to. There was the whole mob last season, obviously, right. but they've pretty much disappeared from the show. There's no one left who would who has it in for Fields, right? Right, exactly. Who would try or to make who would defend argument. Steve because everyone sort of rejected him. Exactly, yeah. Um, so, is there anything else? Oh, uh, there's a there's that brief scene with Aunt Lou. Oh, yeah. I suppose. Oh, we got to talk about the theater stuff. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, first thing I want to say is just that Brian Cox is amazing. I love him. He's so good. Yeah, he's fantastic. I love watching. Um, him. so I really like him. Uh, I have to say that. Uh, I it's I can't get a read on what the hell is happening. <laughs> Me neither. I'm I'm in the dark. It's so I enigmatic. It. Um, I don't really think. I think part of the problem is I'm looking for some sort of deeper situation that isn't happening. Um, with uh, Chesterton and uh, uh, Langrish, I think there isn't. I think they were just friends, and um, I really like the scene where he dies um not because not because nice i want him <laughs> to die i'm just i think it's a nice scene and i like that they're sort of they're reading out this soliloquy i guess it is and um sort of waiting for the for it to all to pass it's a little bit weird that the rest of the cast is all sitting in the darkness and then like come out of the darkness after he dies. i really loved that it actually. was i thought that truly was so bizarre. strange well, the whole scene so is shy weird. as if they're alone, and then suddenly there's just these three, like, vultures. Because you see them, like, all of a sudden, there's that wide shot, and you see someone, like, a silhouette move in front of the camera, and you're like, wait, what? What is happening? Who's there? Yeah. And then they, yeah, they emerge from the darkness after he dies. It's so, it's theatrical. As oh, everything is, is so, every single thing about this is so theatrical. Um, Which is what I, like, that's the part of it I admire, that I think is fun. I don't know why it's in the show. <laughs> You've know, been all. saying that for several but episodes. I, Why is this? In the show? And I will say that Chesterton's noises that he was making were so gross. I did have to tur- take out my headphones, <laughs> um, just because I was gonna throw up. Yeah, not into that, huh? Not no, going into the medical no, I wasn't profession. In, didn't huh? like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't much like uh, the noises that were happening when Al was having his kidney stone either. So this show is just oh yeah, that, oh I yeah, guess. yeah. No, it gets quite gross. Um, so cool, yeah. So that's so that all happened. Uh, the other language uh, <laughs> story, it. yeah. That's not really much to say there. Uh, they are. There's also been this. It, it was you know it's all connected because it feeds into this back and forth about what they're doing with the uh, Shazami and the rest of it. Um, but uh, the other, I'd say, point about Langrish is that um, he has this conversation with um, Hurst about his back. Uh, and I actually kind of find this funny, although I can't really get a read on what the hell is happening, because it seems to me at first that Langrish is using this back problem that uh, Hearst is having as a means of infiltrating and sort of getting like a 
you know, playing the long game on getting Hearst vulnerable or who knows what he's trying to do there, but something in Al's interest, but then raises it later with Al. Like it's, it just occurred to him, Oh, maybe I could do this for you. And Al's like, okay. Uh, and then he announces to Hearst that he's friends with Al very publicly. So it doesn't seem like a master plan so much. as just like a series of events that happened. But clearly what he's doing is bullshit and he knows that it's bullshit and he's none of it is actually really fixing anything with Hearst. So, well, I think his intention here, so kind of confused. as far as I can understand <laughs> it, is that, he, you know, and it is a very bizarre plan. I, I, my guess, obviously what he's doing with the back stuff is just trying to get Hearst on his good side and trying to, because we know that Hearst will be very talkative to people he considers like subservient to him or beneath him. So I think that maybe Langrish can kind of see that in him or maybe just maybe he has experience with other people like that and and he's making a guess. But he wants to be in a position where Hearst will tell him things maybe that he wouldn't say to Al because he sees Langrish as beneath him. But then it's complicated by this moment at the end of the episode where he reveals to to Hearst that him and Al are old friends. And I think the reason he does this, I mean, for one, like, if Hearst just sees him and Al together, he's obviously going to assume that they're in it together, Mm. right? And then the whole thing is blown. So I think he kind of has to play it off as like, oh, we're just old friends, right? Not We're not allies, which is what you would assume by seeing us together on the balcony. Mm. We just happen to know each other. And then by saying that, maybe he can, maybe he is going to, try and get Hearst to think, oh, I can use this. Now Now Hearst thinks that Langrish is his in to Al, basically. True. That could be the case. That could be the case. I mean, we do have that line from one of the, from the first episode, I think, that Langrish is in, where he says something to the effect of, you know, that violence isn't always the most effective way of inflicting pain or some kind of thing like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the first time we're seeing him make any sort of moves in the camp because he's been so distracted with what's going on with Chesterton uh, and the new theater. Um, so it's quite possible that he's going to try and, and move in that direction. As to whether or not it's going to play out effectively, I don't know. And it all kind of seems like a weird roundabout plan considering there's now 25 armed people in the town who work first. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it, I guess. Yeah, kind of a well, like I said, it's kind of a hard episode to talk about. So I guess we're a little short this week. But that's okay. I think that's all right. Um, yeah, it's nothing wrong with that. I, I did. I just this is a small, a very small, extremely small. But there was a moment uh, where Seth is just angrily looking out the balcony and talking about Hurst, how we're not going to wait for him to make a move. And we've got to act and blah, blah, blah. And Al just looks at him like, and shakes his head. And he's just like, you just can't help yourself. You mm-hmm. have literally no strategy. Um, and mm-hmm. also he comes to Al and he's like, the letter was a mistake. We shouldn't have done the letter. Almost implying that he came up, that they had in some way discussed the letter prior to the thing. Like, Well, no, I think he's just like, he's expressing his own frustration with this plan that was his okay. plan, right? Okay. He's saying to Al, like, oh, I can't, you know, the same way that you're like, you know, you you text you text someone you like, and then it was you're waiting for them to respond. You're texting your other friend like that. I should have said it. Why did I, say that? 
I can't believe I sent that. <laughs> yeah, that was my read Deadwood, on it. Uh, 2019 would be a very different show. <laughs> <laughs> Al gets an iPhone. You know, what's funny is I started watching um, Justified. Yeah, today. I saw you were watching that. You I just can't get enough episode. of Timothy Oliphant, huh? I guess. Well, he, it's funny because he's, he's just playing Seth Bullock pretty yeah, much. Yeah, that's what people have said. It's just the same A guy, lot of people started awesome. watching Justified because Deadwood was just never gave them a conclusion. So they were like, well, I guess I'm going to watch Just Justified then. It was a good pilot. I, I'm I'm going to keep cool. watching. Yeah, yeah, it's good. To, I'm, we'll get some other perspective here because I've never seen Justified, but, uh, you know. Um, very good. All right. So what do we, uh, what do we have for next week? Next week we have amateur night. <laughs> very good. By Adam Davidson, who I don't, I don't know that name. recognize that name, but I guess we'll find out next week. Very good. All right. 